This is for some of us a momentous occasion. For many years it's been the desire of a few of us to do this Mennonite program, so to speak, in a Catholic church. And we're grateful for Pastor or Reverend David Mowat, Betty and Frank and others who are so accommodating. I say this because for years I remember in my childhood my people defined themselves for what reason whatever against the Catholics and against others, and even against other Protestants. And so I'm delighted that we can today join forces here. One of the times when I first received a bit of a glimmer of light into the Catholic world was when Bishop Sheen, who traveled the world over, came one time into a southern city in the States to give a talk, and he was so enthused about his trip to the Far East, and he said, I want to in heaven someday, when I sit down and have time, I want to talk with Gandhi about a lot of things. And one of the pietistic fundamentalists, angry, shouted out, what if he isn't there? And Bishop Sheen, in his inimitable smile, looked down at the young man and said, well, if he isn't there, you ask him. <laughs> Got me started thinking about Notre Dame, and I went to Notre Dame University, and they said they would give a Mennonite a scholarship, so I attended there when they were going through their renewal movement. And I have a lot of affection for them there. We are also greatly indebted tonight, and I've never heard this said in a Protestant church, we're immensely indebted to the Hebrew people for the, for the Jewish Bible. The thousands of years it took, and in researching the letters and the stories you'll hear today, our people in the greatest suffering again and again resorted to the Jewish Bible and the dialogue with God and the agony for answers. And we're indebted to them. When I mentioned to, the, to some Jewish friends in Winnipeg, they said, oh yes, the Mennonites have always had a great connection with us. And when your Russian Mennonites came to Winnipeg, the first thing about six of them did, he said, joined our cultural association, which we called the three R's. And he said, they connected with us and today they're immensely wealthy. The three R's stood for reading, writing, and retailing. <laughs> One time a forward teacher said they would invite people of different faith, and she invited a Jewish rabbi to come in, and he asked the class, whoever could tell him the most important person in the world would get this immense amount of money in those days. And one girl suggested the prime minister, and he said, no, that's not the most important person to the Jewish people. Somebody else mentioned the mayor of the town, and he said no. And finally, a Mennonite boy in the back said, he had his answer, and he said, Moses. And the rabbi said, you're right. Come forward, he got the money. The Mennonite lad went back to his buddies in the corner and said, I knew the answer, Rudy, was Menno Simons, but business is business. <laughs> Mysteries of grace and judgment. St. Paul talks much about the mystery of grace, the mystery of forgiveness, but also of the mystery of evil. It has plagued people from time immemorial. But the mandate for us in this mystery of judgment and of grace, of evil and of good, is to tell the story. Because in telling the story, we chart new waters. And in telling the story, we understand ourselves in relation to our past. Facts have no life of their own in spite of the Western world. Facts do not convey human truth. Facts do, in fact, often camouflage the truth. Because Shakespeare said, the devil can even quote facts and scripture to blessed am at error. But the story with its nuances and its images, like art, it always incarnates the total human experience. It offers us a language of understanding, 
And Jesus knew what he was doing. And the Hebrews knew what they were doing when they wrote in poetry and drama and all kinds of other forms. Because story is the best form of remembering. In the biblical sense, true worship is remembering. The nature religion said, no, you focus on the flower or the tree or the rock, and it's kind of a pantheism. You don't have to know context or history. But worship is remembering. And in remembering, we have to remember what the, what the Hebrews meant by it. Because by remembering, they said the past is never the past, as we do in the Western world, and the future is never as the Western world looks at it, but the past is always before us. And when we say the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, we mean that Abram and Isaac and everything they stand for are a cloud of witnesses in our lives. And so today I have the Siberian brothers and sisters around me, and we're building them into our system and in our values and our thinking, because they've been dismembered. And when they're dismembered, it, oh, it's, our, it's our indebtedness to make that fragmentation whole by remembering them, by giving them membership. And when Jesus says, when you meet, remember when you do this, because you, you put, give me membership in your group. But Sorokin has written a book called The Sensate Age. Today we do not remember, we only feel. And Faulkner in The Sound and the Fury said, life is like an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And Benji, the character in that novel, is all sensation and grief. And someone has said the Western world represents a lobotomized worm because they only have sensations, but we don't want memory, we don't want history, and we don't want the full context. We're spectators, but not pilgrims. And unless we remember, and today I'm glad you asked and came, because if we do not remember and put membership to it, all the king's horses and all the king's men can never put it together again. He who has no story has no God. Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, what we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from the children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. It takes only one generation of non-telling to lose the import of it. What should be before us is then really the past, a dead past. And life is reduced to opinions and fads and isms and winds of doctrine and nothing to guide us. But the mandate is, when they shall ask, first of all, give them occasion. Pile up a pile of stones on the 401 so that people can say what is going on. And then you say, I've got you now, I've got your attention, and this is what I want to say. God before us, the Shekinah glory. Because outside of the tribe, there is no healing. T.S. Eliot wrote in Tradition and the Individual Talent, they in so-called our past are what we know and they will be what we are. And Matthew Arnold said every generation has to write its own books and cannot write unless they know what was before them. In the end is my beginning. 
Now, we should not remember like the blind men remember the elephant. And you can put that on a computer, and one sees it as a tail, and one sees it as a wall, and one sees it as a trunk, and so on. No, story, the whole story is about change. It is about seeing the whole. And the question tonight is how do we, each of us, and collectively in our collective bodies, carry our narrative? How is it in our bones and marrow and in our literature and in our, in our worship? If not, others will tell the story for us. The sad thing historically is that whenever the story has not been told, in ritual and remembering, in communion and in worship and in reflecting and in history, whenever it has not been done, others told the story for us. I need not belabor that long today. But you know how Stalin was believed by millions and millions. Father Stalin could do no wrong, and he made us believe that a new system was coming in. Seventy years of unmitigated terror. Twenty million people died in Siberia. Hitler came on the scene, and good people, good people as good as you and I, believed him. And he said to some Protestants, I base it on the New Testament, and I base it on truth and value. And it was all rhetoric. But he told the story. To bring it a little closer to home, look what we did with the Japanese in World War II. Roosevelt, Mackenzie King, and others had us believe the story that they were a risk. And we plundered their property and brought them into the country. And it wasn't true. So a passion opinionating outside of the story is the result of not knowing the story. The painting, uh, the paint-by-number sermons today is because we don't know the story. And religious executives run churches for growth and so on. I'm not belittling that. But if it's not rooted in the story, it only becomes another religious club. But life finds us out. And that's where grace abounds. Life finds us out. A young man said he grew up in a conservative Mennonite tradition and he was so, so tired of it. His backward people and the way they sang and the way they worshipped and they believed unremittingly, he said. And finally he had the courage. He was 18 years old and he left home. And he went to university and he was pleased with himself and he got a BA degree. And he was delighted because he was beginning to forget the German, and he no longer was hungry for the food. And then he got his MA degree. And then he said he began to enjoy Philistine food. And then finally he got his doctorate. And when he had his doctorate, he was completely emancipated from his past. And his favorite aunt died, and he went home. And he went into the rural countryside, and they put him up in the attic, and he was muttering to himself how quaint these people are, and, but he'd, he'd, he'd last out the funeral. And at night he had to, to relieve, relieve himself, and then his language got even bluer because they still had an outhouse outside. And he said then he went down and he went out in bare feet in this pristine moonlight shining on dew-studded grass. And he walked through the grass and somebody had left a rake upended. And he stepped on the rake and he said immediately all his organs, his bladder, his lungs, his eyes, his mouth, his calves, everything was informed of one pulse. And he said it was just like I had a shock treatment. And then the rake hit him in the front of the head. And he said, Duick, that was grace for me. In one instant, I remembered 27 German words to call that rake. <laughs> well, if God can speak through Balaam's ass, why not through a home, home hardware uh, rake? Today we celebrate, and we're sandwiched in today between Thanksgiving Day and Remembrance Day. Roses in the desert. The Mennonite sojourn was a long trip. At least it seemed long. 450 years since the Anabaptists broke away from other Protestants and from the Catholic Church, 
from Swingley and so on, and they were the first group in Europe that really propagated democracy. Priesthood of believers, we can decide ourselves, we meet, we have a vote, and we decide. And they frightened not only the religious people, but they frightened the poli uh, political structure as well. But Menno Simons and Conrad Grable and Felix Mons and Blaurock, many misfits, many wonderful women, they carried this torch of being biblicists. In Holland, where my people come from, Menno Simons had, had converted to the Christian faith and adult baptism, and he said he taught the church. The, uh, the Dutch people became very, very wealthy. And when the Swiss Mennonites uh, got into trouble, it was the Dutch Mennonites that helped them with the supplies to get to America. Later on, they returned that. But you know, the Mennonites always have been appreciated for what they could do for their industry, by and large. But they were always forced to leave for how they practiced their belief. And so soon they were uprooted again and had to go to Danzig, or Gdansk in Poland, the Vistula Delta, where they uh, were for 250 years. Again, they became very successful and very wealthy. When Frederick came in and said, you must learn the German language, they were a little upset by that. But soon we learned German, and soon German became our religious language. But when the military said, you can no longer farm and own land unless the military approves it, we were again crowded. So the landless could leave, and to make it short, Catherine the Great said in the 1790s, I have thousands and thousands and thousands of acres that I've taken away from the Turks and Mohammedans in southern Russia. Come and farm. Interesting how the Mennonites often have received land that was taken away from somebody else. I better not get into that today. But soon in southern Russia, we had Kortitsa and Molochna and Crimea and Kuban, 400 villages eventually. Strife persisted, but it was great success. After 1850, there were 400 villages all over the, all over the area. We had many schools, business schools, nursing, grade and high schools, studies abroad, manufacturing, milling, lumber, experimental farms. The Tsar used to send his family, and they spent time on the Mennonite estates and on the experimental, experimental farm in the Kortetsa River. 1910 World's Fair, the Mennonites got first prize. By 1915, 10% of all farm machinery was built by Mennonites. The horse, which is now still a favorite horse in Russia, was crossbred by Johan Kornis. And I'd write Yeltsin a letter for royalties, but he's broke. The village was a community. First of all, it was for security. But you know, in, in Russia, we were given the land and nobody else was near us. So we were given autonomy and everything. And so we could build our villages for security. And so we all lived on five acres or so and then farmed outside of the village. And that made for great fellowship in the evenings and great solidarity. They literally made the desert bloom like a rose, and it seemed forever summer, forever Sunday. And I tell you, it was an unbeatable formula. God helps those who help themselves, and we found it true. The just will always reap a just good world. If you're biblical, God will look after you. And that's the way it was. The village was a marvelous tribal institution and daily discourse and fellowship. After the 1917 communist revolution, the incarcerated and survivors on the Saskatchewan dust storms in Siberia and elsewhere fondly remembered the communal well-being. 
the songs under the trees, the visits in the evening shadows, and especially the youth songs and games in the balmy moonlit nights. It seemed that the struggle for survival, even the in inevitable church and civic tensions were dissolved in poetry and song and great food. They agreed with a poet, Den wo man singt, da lasst dich ruhig nieder, den böse Leute haben keine Lieder. God's in his heaven, and all's right with the world. It is indeed exhilarating when all empirical evidence supports religious beliefs and faith. What better way could you have it? When the Mennonites first settled in Russia in the late 1700s, they were not even given the land of their promised choice, and dropped on the steps near the Kortetsa River. Some first responses were, oh God, how shall we survive on these barren plains? And for several years, some of the settlers lived in sod hovels, and thought they'd never make it. But God's nature responded to human cultivation. The honest laborer reaps a just and flowering world. In poetry, song, and meditation, Mennonite faith was frequently expressed in romantic, religious cadences of simple truth and delight in all creation under God. heavens were telling the glory of God. Day to day, harvest field to luscious pasture, orchard to garden, songbird to flower, a symphony of color throughout the Ukraine, fragrance and life in praise of the Creator blessing the Mennonite endeavor. And so they sang songs of questions rhetorically grounded in a deeply sensed answer. Yeah. 
faith wonder of it all. In their 300-year history, the Mennonites and Anabaptists had been buffeted about by church and state, sometimes persecuted, imprisoned, burnt, drowned, other times forced to move, but always disfranchised for what they believed and how they practiced that belief. Here in Russia, God had finally seen fit to bless the Mennonites with their own land, their own autonomy, their security, their freedom, their own schools, to live and move and have their being, basking in an ordered and thriving nature, nestled into the confidence that God cared for all, even the sparrow, the hair on your head. This pristine trust in God finds lyrical utterance in poetry and song. For the very stars, the tiny fish, the minute mosquito, and especially the little child, all abide peaceful and secure in God's providence and gentle love. The lilting question is counterpointed with a transcending answer.
was indeed a summer Sunday and a weekday winter. There's a book entitled Forever Summer, Forever Sunday. And it reminds me that the Mennonites often colored their experiences in rosy hues, somewhat stylized, always romantic, warm and pietistic. But there were problems in Eden. The government charter gave the Mennonites the right to run their own system. So anybody who didn't join the Mennonite church would have to move elsewhere, possibly to Siberia. Can you imagine what that does to voluntary church membership? Eventually. They were given autonomy, and with it comes success and control. And so there, became, there came a fight between the clergy and the civic authorities, and eventually Johann Cardenese began to take over education and so on. There were problems indeed. In 1870, some people thought because they had to learn the Russian language and a few other restrictions of conscription, that they would leave, and a lot of Mennonites came to Manitoba and to Mexico and elsewhere. Church inter internal frictions occurred too. And some of you know the Kleinigemeinde started, the Mennonite Brethren Church, the Templars. There was a lot of friction, a lot of church meetings. There were floggings. There was physical violence. And they finally got the charter from the government to also run their church. Grace abounded. And as we slugged it out, the will of God seemed to be done. Because we're all here today. One minister even in arranging, because he was in charge of civic affairs, one minister even arranged that all the taxes would be prorated and he would be tax-exempt on his farm. They didn't discover this till later on. So we weren't perfect. But in spite of the economic inequities and the church friction and the splinters, we do see this against the backdrop of lyricism of faith and trust. Because even though the paradox and inconsistency surfaced, art and faith always turn paradoxes into something meaningful. We carry their narrative gratefully because we plod the hunger and thirst for spiritual, moral, and practical integrity. And the people that came to Canada in the Dust Bowl years and depression soon built churches and cheese factories and hospitals and Bible schools and soon had their young people moving ahead again and learning and so on. The pulse of faith was often romantically expressed, to be sure, in childlike piety and lyrical utterances but the untold that ultimately what could be more lovely than a felt faith and a felt commitment to the lover of our souls.
terrible beauty is born, and all, all is changed utterly, utterly, forever. World War I came, and with it conscription and alternate service, the outside world moved in by the news and by the events from beyond the borders. 1917 brought the communist revolution, and all was changed utterly for all of us, and a terrible beauty was born. During the time of the communist takeover, when the uh, civil war had finally ended and the whites and the Maknoff and the reds had all done their plunder all over the country, the communists began to confiscate the property of all people. John Hebert was a wealthy man, and as told to me orally by the late C.C. Taves, John Hebert was a mill owner, and mill owners were very rich. He had been called many things in his church and his civic and his economic life. And here are some of them. He was called a Mennonite. He was called a capitalist. He was called a communist, a Christian, a Kulak, a disturber of the peace, and a damn Anabaptist. Hebert sees the story whole. And as the British poet Tomlinson says, where you love, you cannot break away. And during World War I, when all the Russian males, 16 and 17 and older, had to go into the army, the Mennonites could plead exemption and go on conscription service, and some could even pay an amount of money and be exempt. It's like doing violence by proxy. But Hebert could not forget James and Jesus. Pure religion is he who feeds the hungry and takes care of the orphans. And I was in prison and you visited me. And I was hungry and you fed me. And I was naked and you clothed me. And he sends word to the Russian peasant villages near, near uh, the Mennonite settlement and said that each family that had males in the army could come and get a certain amount of flour every month or every week. I forget what it was. And the church re response was somewhat staggering. People were incensed by it, that first of all, he was helping people who were not believers. Some said he should only give money for people to save other people's souls, and we've heard that before. Some said he shouldn't do it because he'd be a stumbling block, and that's a great weapon against us. Had he not been as prominent as he was, they would have probably been able to deal with him. But in agony, he walked the floor, I am told, and said, I cannot do otherwise because where you love, you cannot break away. And it isn't simple, but I'm going to do it. Could he afford it? No. Would he go bankrupt? Yes, if this continued too long, he would. The communists came eventually, the war is over, the communists came to confiscate his mill. The day they came, word had already got out, and none of the Mennonites ostensibly supported him, it seemed like. But outside of the mill, there was a great gathering of the peasant women with rotten tomatoes and sticks and other kind of weaponry. And when the uh, communists came to confiscate, they shouted them away and frightened their horses, and they left. They came back a second time with a larger cavalry. And the officer in charge stopped everybody when the tomatoes stopped flying and said, you don't understand. Hebert was the enemy. He's a kulak. And he doesn't own the mill. You own the mill. We are communists, and that means you'll get the mill. And the tomatoes were flying again, and someone had shouted, apparently, Hebert was a better communist than you ever will be. Hebert is no more. Out, out, brief candle. And the good deeds that we do seem but a sputtering flame. But I tell you, I'm here to tell his story. I'm here to make his narrative part of my story. And so Hebert is alive today. 
But Hebrides no more, he vanished in the fold of the Damask of that horrendous Siberian darkness. And whoever said that the Jesus deeds was an insurance policy for safe living? We have here a millionaire, a compassionate human being, basically honest, starving to death in a frozen hell, abandoned by God and man. And although God's promise of caring for his own seems annulled, the warm scriptural assurances of a God who cares seems only to heighten our loneliness and pain in this story. How can we believe, deckest mich so freundlich, schützest mich und deckst mich zu, while all about you, life, family, love, security, and even faith lie collapsed upon themselves in a cacophony of terror? Ah, but today, with his story, we still believe and sing. And then came the Mennonite apocalypse. The Red Army and the Makhnov bandits and the White Army overran the southern Russian villages 27 times until there was not a cow remaining and not a horse remaining. Billeting, confiscation, destruction, a three-way holocaust, 
rape, plunder, until finally some young men said, we cannot endure this anymore. All our theories of pacifism are but theories, and they're abstract. We got to form our own army. The late B.B. Jans in, Co Jans in uh, Coldale, Alberta, told us that there were long church meetings, all night long prayers, wrestling with this question. Because he said, we said some trust in chariots and horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. But the young said, our sisters are raped and our mothers are bayoneted to death. Because the Maknoff bandits knew no end and there was anarchy the world over. And so they formed an army. They got themselves guns and there were about 300 of them. And they hid behind manure piles and in haylofts and behind trees. And that dark October night when the bandits came back through the village cavalier, their guns not even loaded because the Mennonites never defended themselves. These 300 let loose a volley of fusillade, and they said it felt so good. It came right out of Psalm 137. But the next morning, as Mennonites got up in terror, they found in the trees of the Mennonite villages hung the teenagers of the Maknoff bandits. And they somehow knew they had crossed the tremendously important border. The bandits came back and they leveled the entire town of Münsterberg totally and wrecked havoc on the rest of the area. The Dick family, prominently known at the time, was, was slaughtered. And in the Mennonite archives is a picture of a funeral around a mass grave. People seeing at the funeral, seeing the spiraling smoke of villages being destroyed around them, destruction wrought on neighboring villages, heard the echoes of gunfire in the surrounding hills, and they gathered around this cavern in the earth with bodies upon bodies lying there side by side. They had some of the audacity to sing of their ultimate faith. like to interject that some of the names I use are fictitious. The stories are not, but sometimes uh, uh, descendants prefer another name used. The stories are all true, though. 
Mr. Weens was also a wealthy man. He was a deacon. And many of us, as we became more wealthy, some Mennonite estates had up to 300 servants, so a lot of them were, were already Russian peasants. No labor laws, and in our background, fathers could beat their children and their servants. Many treated their children and their servants very well. Some Mennonites were helped by the Russian peasants at the risk of their life to get out of the country because the communists were after them. Others turned against them. Some Mennonites turned against each other and turned their own people over to the communists. But Weens had been a somewhat rigid man, a deacon in the church. He knew exactly how the young people should live. He was considered somewhat legalistic. He was stern at home. He was wealthy. And he beat his servants considerably when they didn't work hard enough. The Holocaust came, and Weens' estate was destroyed. Some of his buildings were burnt. I'm told his wife was bayoneted to death. His daughter was raped to death, and daughter disappeared. No one knew where. His sons were killed, and one was sent to Siberia, and I think one escaped to Canada. Weens was alone. The thugs had come through the villages, and they shot every nightingale, every cow, every dog, everything alive. J.B. Taves tells the story of how he, as a young boy, used to crawl along the riverbank, digging in the mud, to see if he could find a frog to eat. Weens was hiding by the riverside, and his hunger drove him, and he remembered that in the corner of the barn he had buried a sack of geröstet zwiebak, toasted rolls, and some salt pork. And he made his way along the hedgerow, terrified he'd be caught, and he came across the yard, and he walked across the yard the evening sun, and he came to the barn, ravenously hungry, and he opened the doors, and he was afraid there'd be the KGB, and he creaked open the doors, and he walked into this huge barn. It's empty, no cattle, not a living thing. And he crunched along the straw to the corner of the barn where he could find his food. And the sun danced in the dust from the pockmark that the bullets of the revolutionaries had left, and he walked and he walked, and his hair stood on end, knowing the KGB was somewhere. And as he came to the corner, he knelt down and began to dig in the straw, and the straw erupted, and a KGB officer came out of it, and he, he fell back in terror and cried aloud. And then he saw it was his Russian peasant servant. And the Russian peasant servant again fell in the servant master role and cowered down by the straw in fear because he was eating Weens's geröst at the Zwiebach. And Weens said, I had served communion 1,000 times, and I had, I had mouthed the words of Jesus and remember me as you do this. But he said it took this epiphany, kneeling in the cow manure, to find that I finally understood in one flash of insight what communion meant. And he said, no, I must repent to you. We are no longer servant and master, no longer slave and free, but we are brothers. And in that manure and that moldy straw, they broke the Gerestet Svibach and ate. Weens survived to tell the tale. And in one of his favorite songs, I understand, was As schaut bei Nacht und Tage, dein Holdes bild mich an und legt mir vor die Frage, ob ich dich lassen kann.
by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. There our captors asked us for songs. There our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. In one night, all the male population 15 years and older vanished in some of the Mennonite villages, into boxcars to Siberia never to be seen again. The story of the heroic women has not yet really been written. There are a number of books, but they have not yet really been read. But the women kept some of those communities together, and they later on brought their families out. Your program has a picture of that horse and the wagon Hundreds and hundreds of them brought their families out for miles and miles and miles through mud and rain and snow and winter to Europe and finally came to Canada. Mass starvation reigned. The Ukrainians of Toronto have published the book called Execution by Hunger. It's a systematic attempt at starving everybody out of the country. A night of terror and there was no order in the land. Typhoid, food rotting, Communists would come and load boxcars and boxcars of any food they could still find and then park them on the sidings and they would rot. Young men were shot for sneaking and crawling through the stubble at night for a cob of corn. Turning and turning in the widening jar, the falcon cannot hear the falconer and things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned when the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming, barely are those words out, then a vast image out of spiritus Monday troubles my sight. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Evil always looks for a way of incarnating. The Mennonites fled. MCC helped some of us escape. Some were, some were shipped away. Some came via Asia. Some came via Latvia. Some came via Germany. But some escaped. And then the doors closed and many couldn't get out. And many Mennonites said, we can still get to Moscow and get out. And the story is told by some of our grandfathers of how the Mennonites en masse went to Moscow. And they applied for the papers to leave the country, and they were denied. 
and they met under the, under the frozen trees in the forest and huddled beneath their blankets and eating their salt pork and geröst at the Zwiebach, and they didn't know where to go. And then they came up with an ingenious idea. Don't tell me the Mennonites don't demonstrate. They often don't dem demonstrate enough for others, but for themselves they have. And they decided that all the mothers with children two years and younger should come to the outer offices of the visa or the immigration paper granting body, and they should not bring any food for their children and no change of diapers. <laughs> and so they filled the outer halls of these, uh, of these communist officials, and uh, the noise and the stench, and finally the ammonia did what the rake did for that guy in, in that town. The ammonia finally cleared the head of the communist officials and they gave them their visas. <laughs> God works in mysterious ways. When they came back to the people in the village, into the forest, and said, we have the visa, the one man, I've been, I've been told the one man had the pack of them and handed them out and discovered to his horror that he didn't have his own. And some of his relatives told me he could not get a visa. He had been too active and they excluded him. He later on traveled to Asiatic Russia and he was shot before a firing squad. He never got out. But they said, you have your visa. So they got ready to travel on the train that night. And I remember the story as a seven-year-old boy hearing B.B. Jans tell it with his inimitable style. Sounds and all. And they stood at the train station. And hysteria arose because somebody said, you are idiots. Never would they let you go to, uh, to, to uh, go abroad. But you're heading for Siberia. And this is crowd control. They gave you the visas. And when they get outside of Moscow, the train turns around Moscow and goes to Siberia. And the switch goes over to Latvia. And they try to calm each other down for the sake of the children. They got to the station, and every 10 feet, there was a young red guard saying, bayonet anybody who makes any sound. No sound whatsoever. And parents said they practically suffocated their children. And they stood in that starry sky, lantern swinging, not a sound. Until one grandmother, under a star-studded Moscow sky, had the audacity to quaver a song to the heavens. And soon the entire refugee gathering fills the Moscow sky with song. It's a sobering afterthought. 
While 5,000 escaped, the train left the station, came, came hissing into the station, children crying in terror, had never seen a locomotive. The doors were creaked open and they threw the Mennonites in and locked the doors and the train left and everybody was weeping and wailing because it's going to Siberia and the train went out of the station. And it corrected itself on the crossing and went to Latvia. 200 yards short of Latvia it stopped and again they cried thinking and the KGB came on the train and all they wanted was in case anybody had any gold rings or any jewelry or anything of value. And they crossed Latvia and stopped again. And some people to this day say for them it's a deeply visceral religious experience when the doors opened and a Red Cross nurse said, welcome to Latvia. And they fell out of the trains and kissed the earth. While 5,000 escaped, the sobering truth is that for all the prayers, 15,000 didn't make it and the train did not correct the railing but went to Siberia. While some thanked God for answers to prayer, others wasted away in Siberia, and some wondering to the end of their days whether God really played Russian roulette. Peter Nanbargan found a, several boxes in their, grand, their late grandmother's attic, and she had saved all the letters that had been smuggled out and mailed from different parts of Russia, but they come from Siberia. And it's a book entitled From Russia with Tears. Heart-rending stories of grandparents writing to children in, in Saskatchewan, of grandparents writing to grandchildren that they haven't seen yet in Alberta or to Paraguay and so on, of husbands writing to fathers. And the letters you're hearing now come from this book. Sunday, 12th of September, 1931, to Mina, in exiled incarceration. Dearly beloved Tina and Benjamin, in love, your lost brother, Abram Regeer. Suffering. Suffering is better when you are innocent than suffering when you are guilty. With this thought, we comfort ourselves. One day, the hour of our tormentors will strike as well. The other night, they packed 40 of us into a small chamber where 10 men would hardly have room. We were there for several days. Then the rooms were emptied of their prisoners, and we were taken to a barracks. We remained incarcerated there for three weeks. Four times I was called before the KGB and questioned by that mentioned Fresser. He kept asking me, what property does your father own? So for one month, we sat in jail. When night came, we prayed and lay down for our rest. We lay until 2 a.m. when the KGB and the local police came. They told us to get our things together and prepare ourselves to move they were going to send us out of the Ukraine. They told us we were being moved to the southern Urals. But as we know, those devils live only by lies and theft. When we reached Belayakarnets, I saw my dear mama. She was already standing there, crying. As we were unloaded, we noticed that all the mothers and their children were being held in a granary. A policeman with a rifle was guarding the door. We were herded into the granary as well. Marie and the children were already there. She was crying bitterly. Saturday we arrived. Sunday we were loaded onto a boxcar. Monday the boxcars left.
beloved children and grandchildren in Canada. Well, dear family, let me again mention our sorrows and suffering here. My sister, Tina, has been arrested and sent into Siberian exile. You cannot imagine how much weeping and wailing goes on here daily. It is heart-wrenching to see them Shanghai the men and drag them off, knowing we will never see them again. Right now, we can say nothing about happy hours. But we remember how it was. In those times, we gathered together in the family circle. We were happy and enjoyed each other. Yes, where did those days go? As a puff of smoke, they have vanished. Everything, everything gone. You are in America. Papa has died. Mama, driven and pursued like a deer. Hans is sick unto death. We are in the far north in exile, where there is only woe and misery. Starvation stands at the door, and we are almost without clothes and shoes. Such now are our days. We have no joy. We have been robbed of our children. They work like slaves. Our 12-year-old Tina is a fragile child. Every day she goes to work very early, 5 o'clock. The ground is frozen hard. Even a strong man can hardly dig through it. But Tina has to fill her quota every day. The child has already cried so many tears. They eat their lunch in the forest, in all that frost, snow, rain. We cannot understand why the children must suffer so. Their happy young years they spend in this primeval forest. It is especially hard for me. My children and I have no home anymore. And you cannot get anything to live on. But the Lord has provided until today. I want to serve him in truth, and he will help us in this wretched world. The Lord has helped so marvelously. All glory to him. 
if only we can remain true to him and not miss our heavenly destination. Deeply beloved brother Hans, love and longing for you are driving me to write. 
My prayer and pleading is that God may help you, my very favorite brother, Hans, and restore your health. Dear brother Hans, let us always put our trust in God, call upon him in our day of trouble. He will indeed hear our cry. My dear brother Hans, I want to write down a few lines of comfort for you. In every storm of these times, Jesus is standing by you, brother. Blessed is he whose hope is in Jesus Christ. In fate and nature, he is beside you, dear brother Hans, even in your great suffering. Endure, endure, my heart. We pray to the Lord without fear or hesitation. Be brave and courageous. Overcome. Show your faithfulness. The Lord is at your side and helps you ever. And you are my heart. Look into the future. In the holy city of Zion, souls are waiting. Maybe my soul could meet you there. Others who have gone before will guide you to heaven. If our dear brother, Jesus, sends the suffering, trust him. Cast your burden upon the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved, but thou, O God, will cast them down into the lowest pit. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in thee. Sometimes I do not know what will happen. Well, I must trust the Lord. He has always helped us through. When I think of all the things he has done, there are not enough words with which to thank him. Yesterday, I opened my Bible at Psalm 107. He led them to a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks unto the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds. I went to my testament and opened it at Luke 21. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will save yourself. The ways of the Lord are right, even though today we do not understand the deeply woeful ways he is leading us. Just like our Lisa, who must now work down in the coal shafts, she too cannot understand the way she must go. And then, only for that one small piece of bread, Please pray for her, too, that she does not despair of her life. 
No Sunday, no holiday is celebrated. We never hear the word of God. It is like being murdered slowly. Nero's tortures, they were predictable and lasted for minutes. Here, it takes years. Today, I open my Bible to Psalm 37, verses 4 and 5. Trust the Lord and do good. So you will dwell in the land and enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I just cannot grasp it. I read further. I pleaded to God to convince me that he is leading us. I got to verse 19. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. There I stopped. I had to pray. Yes, Lord, it is true. You have known how to preserve us until this day, and we will continue to put our confidence in you. from Johann Tives. It's been three years since I was arrested in Moscow with my loved ones. I am three years removed from love of every kind, from all gentle family fellowship, removed from my precious books, my friends, of whom I had so many. But how much do these three years embody? How many conflicts, how many struggles, how much effort, and how much agony? How many victories have been snatched from defeat? How much self-denial? Still, God has sent grace, grace, and much mercy. I have experienced abundant grace, in that I am still alive here, in this wild, wild land, in this exile amid all, all, all hardships and dire prospects. 
God, how graciously you have led me. A sword is thrust deep into my soul, buried there by eternal love. So deep and so painful, I have squirmed and twisted in my cries for the mercy of good in the name of humanity. Torn loose from the gentle joys of a family, torn apart and sent to the desolate north, now that eternal love takes more love and pushes with his hand on the sword's hilt, bearing down hard, my dear dispirited wife who is becoming, becoming mentally ill, what shall I say to that? Does God's love then cease to be love? No, that is not possible. But if that is not possible, then it must be even greater love than I have experienced before. Then I want to worship again and again. Even though things should get worse, then I want to and will worship and perish. Therefore, all the leadings of our Father in Christ are only pure love, only love. My exile is love, only love. God's love separated my loved one from me out of pure love. He has nothing to fear when he tests our love in this manner, because he knows genuine love will only be strengthened by such an exercise. Other love he does not want and cannot use. I have often, with tears, recited the words of that great hymn, Wenn ich auch gar nichts fühle von deiner Macht, du bringst mich doch zum Ziele auch durch die Nacht. Ich will anstatt an mich zu denken, ins Meer der Liebe mich versenken.
A postscript to that last letter from Johann Taves. Johann Taves was buried by a Mennonite friend and a Mohammedan priest in the deep Siberian forest. And one last letter. The whole Christian world sees what is going on here, how many thousands of their brothers are perishing here, and remains silent. Where is the League of Nations? The League of Nations is silent. Thousands of the best perish, die of hunger. The children get nothing, no milk, no butter, no meat, only 400 grams of sour bread. Almost all the children, 85%, between the ages of 1 and 10 who were sent here, have died. If only God would have compassion and intervene. So it is, and our great God is silent. But then I think of Psalm 121. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We will let God be God.
I want to beg of you to stay with this story for a few minutes longer and take a deep breath and don't give up now. It's getting a bit dark and it's going to get a bit tough. We'll walk to the land of Canaan together. This story for some of the Russian Mennonites and some of the descendants has been 20, 30, 40 years in the making. We'll try and distill it. Why is it that when the refugee makers appear on the world stage, God always seems to disappear? Siberian Holocaust, Northern Ireland, Guatemala, Cambodia, abused children in Winnipeg, former Yugoslavia. He watching over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps, sing that to the thugs in Auschwitz. He watching over the children, Sing that to, that to the two darlings starved to death in Belgium by the pedophiles. Shouldst thou walking in grief languish, he will quicken thee? Tell that to the sixth-old-month Teresa in Winnipeg, whose parents beat her to death. Quicken thee, tell that to Christian French and Leslie Mahaffey, let alone their parents. He slumbers not, he watching over in those mellifluous, seductive, romantic cadences. Tell that to the teenage Guatemalan boys, dropped by the death squads over the Guatemalan rivers, again and again, many upon many. And they, saying their prayers to Hail Mary, have mercy on us. He slumbers not, he watches over his own. Sing that to the 20 million corpses in Siberia, Jews, Armenians, Poles, Mennonites, peasants. Weißt du, wie viele Kinder früher stehen aus ihrem Bettlein auf, dass sie ohne Sorge und Mühe fröhlich sind im Tageslauf? Sing that to the many children under 11 years of age that died of starvation and frost in Siberia. Sing that to the nine-year-old prostitute in Thailand who for three American dollars is given to some American or Western tourist for one night to do as he pleases. Weißt du, wie viele Mücklein spielen? God has counted them all. Man kann ihn immer haben, wenn man ihn haben will. What wonderful cadences those are. You've got to be kidding. In the world today, in the native schools, in Burundi, Jesus, do something. The 20th century has two dominant realities. The one is the refugee. We're awash in refugees. And the other dominant sense is the absence of God and the clamoring again and again for some religion that has us captivated. The Jewish grandmother in Winnipeg years ago said to me when I had some nice pious phrases when she expressed her grief and her anger over Auschwitz and I was disturbed by it and said, but grandmother, don't you believe in God? And she said, son, don't talk to me about believing in God. I have never stopped believing in God. But since Auschwitz, God has stopped believing in us. Paul talks about the mystery of evil. And Hamlet, with Hamlet we say, there is more evil in this world today than your philosophy and your theology could ever dream of. Evil is incarnating. It's like, it's like the mushroom spores in Alaska after a forest fire. It, it mushrooms anywhere it has a chance. And so with Job and Lear, we say, Job who called God a cosmic sadist and asked him to answer him for this. 
And Lear is lamenting as well, and they say, as flies seem we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Or cry out to you, violence! But you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. The utopian language set to various major chords lies in tatters. But God has said, do right and it will go well with thee. Call on me in need and I will answer you. And he shall give his angels charge over thee and let that soprano take that high line and seduce us with that so we believe and feel better. And I will gather you like a hen gathers the chicks and I will take care of you all the time. And not a hair on your head will be hurt. Und keiner wird zu schanden, welcher Gottes hat. Sollte ich sein der erste? Nein, das ist unmöglich. It's impossible. We sing Bach's Magnificat so our choirs can sing and enjoy the marvelous, the marvelous economy of cadences in Bach. The rich he has sent empty away with Mary we sing, not ever in my lifetime. The, the powerful brought low, since when? My soul magnifies the Lord, what for? If with all your heart you truly seek me, you shall ever surely find me. But Jesus, where are you? When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And I, John, looked out through my cell bars and saw the executioners sharpening and lardening the guillotine, and my head was given as an Academy Award for the best striptease dance by a young girl. And I, the forerunner of Jesus, prophet and colleague of the King of Kings, and Jesus, are you a fraud? I'm, I'm sitting in a stinking prison, and it's the end of it. And my head rolls on a platter, and the heads roll even today. And we could well sing, O sacred heads all wounded, with shame and grief brought down. How scornfully surrounded, torture your only crown. O sacred heads, what glory, what bliss in this is thine. I shudder at your story, rejoice not to call you mine. But what language shall I borrow to register your grief? Of this your dying sorrow losses beyond belief. And Jesus, let's have it out. We'll join Job and say, come in the court of law and let's talk about it. But today we live by borrowed languages and I want to list just a few of them. And the borrowed language will not get us to the promised land. There's some that will bypass all ambiguity and all mysteries of God's absence and all questions of evil and just live a very small condensed little life. Are you the one who is to come or should we just keep repeating language? Or should we rely, secondly, on dispensationalism and say, eventually the revenge will come? 
We'll wait it out, and we'll be passive, and someday, God, you're going to get even with them, as the psalmist says. Or we can escape into, into sentimental pietism. Or we can take a real good dose of fundamentalism and be rigid about it and straight. Or exercise a lot of religious mobility and move from designer belief to designer belief and have religion a la carte. But today, the biggest problem is cynicism. Like somebody said to me recently, face it, do it, life's a bitch, and then it's over. And finally, the chemical mysticism that has North America awash today, of finding some kind of transcendence. And we say with proof rock, these fragments have I shored against my ruins, and who will save me? And I, men of every man, say I will not go gentle into that good night. But I want to glimpse the promised land, and I want to know something for the dead, for those who died in misery, and for the evil that is rampant today. And then the Spirit said, well, I'll take you to the promised land, but you have to revisit Bethlehem. But brace yourself. And Bethlehem was not what I expected. It was a cold coming I had of it. It was an empty barn and moldy straw. And I heard the children singing, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us today and enter, be born in us today. But you know, Herod's men were still on the prowl, and in Bethlehem I still heard the gunshots of Palestinians against Israelis and others. They were still shooting themselves, and I heard Rachel for 2,000 years has been crying and will not be comforted. And we would be wise if we but could, and bring our sincerity of frankincense and our gifts of myrrh and our gold of sincerity. And I said to the Spirit, there's nothing here. And the Spirit said, so you believe in evil. So you believe in the incarnation of evil? I said, oh yes, evil is never in the abstract. It always, in, in, it always incarnates into human flesh and blood, be it Hitler or myself and my arrogant ways and so on. The Spirit says, well, why hate the refugee maker more than you love the refugee? No, Jesus will not come as a deus ex machina, he said. He will not come as pie in the sky. He will not even come as a romantic little baby in Bethlehem. I said, are you the one who is to come, or must all our heads roll and that be the end of it? Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. But my question still is, why the absent God? And why the absent Jesus when we need him? No more world games. And no more word games. Where are you, O Jesus? And where were you when we needed you? For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And I remembered Job in dust and ashes, and I discovered that God is absent when good human beings are absent, and that God is absent whenever we let evil take over. In Auschwitz, God is absent because nobody was there to, to change it. In Siberia, God was absent because nobody stood in our gap. The helicopters over Guatemala had no Christian presence. The battered children in Canada have no Christian next to them. Ellie Wiesel tells a story in a book called Night, in which the Auschwitz prisoners are standing, and they're made forced to stand in a large yard. 
men, young and old, starving to death, and they're hanging a boy for having made a minor infraction, and they all have to watch this. And a man behind him says, and where is God now? And in a horrendous view of real incarnation, he said, God is hanging on the gibbet. God is present. Gandhi, who had studied in Cambridge, was asked in India after independence came, what will you do about the Western missionaries? Can they come and preach? Oh, yes, he said, and we want Jesus in India, but he'd better come in the form of food. And Rabin said it right, the late Rabin. The new Jerusalem is peace. Do this in remembrance of me, because where two or three are gathered, that is the Christ, and I don't know if it's good enough for us. Do you want to revisit Bethlehem? Menno Simons, that converted Roman Catholic priest, said, True evangelical faith cannot lie dormant. It clothes the naked. It feeds the hungry. It comforts the sorrowful. It shelters the destitute. It serves those that harm it. It binds up that which is wounded. It has become all things to all people. Having said, yes, the Spirit took me to the mountaintop, and I have seen the promised land. And in the 1920s, there were some people who took Jesus literally, and they said there are people starving in Europe. Shouldn't we get together? And they formed what was later called Mennonite Central Committee. And they took three young men. One was Clayton Kratz, and they, they, they loaded the, a ship with goods to go across the ocean. And they couldn't find any shipping line that would take it. And finally, they, they, the military agreed to ship it over. And you have these, men, these pacifist Mennonites sending all their goods over with a cannon right over the sacks of flour that came to us. So don't be too cynical about using the tax dollar that way. And they came to the Zvestopol, and the communists said, sorry, you can't come in because Lenin says that we are now a world religion and has no respect to persons for ethnic groups, so you can't feed your Mennonites. And they said, well, that's what Jesus tells us to do anyways, and we're not coming just to feed the Mennonites, we'll feed anybody. They said, well, then you can come in. They came in and set up soup kitchens. And a lot of our parents and grandparents says they were about to starve, and, and, and these people from America came in, and Ontario, and sent us the goods. 
And Clayton Kratz, the day before they came back, Clayton Kratz, a junior at Goshen College, a four-pointer, came and said he wanted to go to a peasant village that was starving to death, a Russian peasant village, and he borrowed a couple of very skinny nags and left to deliver the goods, and he never came back. The thugs got him. And many of us today are alive because MCC came and helped us. And today, some of us define ourselves against MCC. And I said to somebody in British Columbia, but they saved your life. And he said, I didn't know that. And I said, ask your parents. The next day, he came into the MCC office and said, I want to make a donation because I think I'm like one of the lepers. I didn't even know my story. And I was healed, and here I am, and I've said nothing about it. We give flowers too late. We should probably not even give them at funerals, but give them daily and weekly to people and to occasions that are good for us. So today, as hokey as it might seem, I've asked somebody to represent those people that sent us help. We have today a lady who is called Lorna Berge, and she remembers as a little child Russian Mennonites coming through here under the auspices of Mennonite Central Committee and her family taking us in. They even had some Irish, an Irish student in and so on, and lived in their home for a while till they get established. And if Lorna Berge, a Swiss Mennonite, can tolerate coming up here and being hugged by a Western Canadian Mennonite brethren, that's just what's going to happen. And I have been to the mountaintop, and I have seen the promised land of the exponential power of good, where, as Martin Luther King said, you have no idea how much one good, moral, courageous act can mean in the universe, a mustard seed that will grow into a great big tree. In 1947, a meek and mild-seeming Edna Byler in Scottsdale, Pennsylvania, in Akron, Pennsylvania, 
accompanied her husband on some of his important trips for the Mennonite Central Committee and refugee work. She became fascinated by some of the linen and stitchery that women were doing in Puerto Rico. And she brought a suitcase full home and sold it to people in her church and got another suitcase full. And to make the story short, in a few years, she had sold $30,000 worth, and that became self-help. And today, millions upon millions of dollars a year are brought from various countries where people can have goods to sell. And that's the irony of good and the irony of evil, that where $3 will buy a nine-year-old girl for prostitution in Thailand, the $3 that last week a family took in for a bit of jewelry sent their nine-year-old daughter to school for one month. And I have been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land of Lini Friesen and Thelma Lowen in Manitoba many years ago, deciding that there were too many clothes that were being thrown away or wasted or just used for floor rags. So they decided to open a small thrift store. And out of that mustard seed grew thrift stores all over the country and all over North America and Europe. And last year, the thrift stores in Manitoba along, little hovels of places for used clothing, gave to MCC Manitoba a net of $1 million. One good moral impulse, one gratuitous act, a tiny mustard seed sown, and behold, today a large, joy-inspiring, ever-bearing fruit tree. And I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land of several men getting together in Morgantown, West Virginia, and saying, let's have an auction sale. And out of that grew the relief sales all over this country and the United States of America. The origin of thrift stores is that way. One moral impulse. And I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the blind chauvinist receiving sight. Not 2020, but getting better. And I've seen that the one who is inflicted with leprosy of cynicism and legalism cured and brought into membership again. And I've seen those crippled and lame with greed made limber with compassion and generosity. And I've seen the prisoners shackled by despair and, dis and bitterness and, and depression made free. And I've seen the dead dismembered raised to joyous living. And I've seen the MCC tragedy of Clayton Kratz engaged to a girl in Pennsylvania, a mere, a mere bit of fodder for the thugs in Russia, never to come back again, his mother practically going insane with the grief. But I've seen the stone rolled away and the resurrection come, and a stream of persons stepped into the pilgrimage in the name of Christ. To date, thousands upon thousands have followed Clayton Kratz and made God present in various parts of the world. Today, some 1,000 MCC saints make the real Jesus present on this anguished globe. And I have been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land of Zion in a water bead, glistening in the early morning sun. 
and all color and sound being yours in Christ, because the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. But why will humans then now not reckon God's rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, and bleared, smeared with toil, and shares man's smell, and shares man's toil. Yet for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, ah, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. I'll join with them who's gone before I've been to the mountaintop, I've been to the promised land, and as I was gazing into the verdant valley below, not wanting the romantic visions again, or the, or the easy piety, I saw under a tree two violinists, and they each hold a Stradivarius violin, a ten million, hundred million dollar violin in their hands. That somebody had the audacity to say, no, I won't let this wood go to waste, I will take this oak and this maple, and I will love it, and I will finger it, and I will knock it, and I will cure it, until I make the world's best violin ever. And he, the spirit said, do you know them? And I reeled back in anger and said, don't I know them? Those two violinists were in a group of a chamber orchestra of Jewish musicians who had to play for the Nazi thugs in a, thugs in a hall like this. The night before, they were set into the crematorium. And I didn't want to look, and I reeled back in anger and said, I've been tricked into this. And the violinists held up their violins and said, Duick, Menno, every man, now we are forever. Nothing can touch us again. And we want to play for you the best music written by any instrument, by any composer in all time. And not fire, and not starvation, and not firing squads. Nothing can stop that music. Bach's double violin concerto. And you know how that thing goes, and how it makes love, and how it goes through a minefield of possible sentimentality or discordances, and shears it all down to some very fine, clean notes on those Stradivariuses. And the second violin comes in, and they weave it in a, in a, in a perfect image of a rainy of peace and meshed. And I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen a cloud of witnesses, these violinists and Abraham and Sarah and Jesus and John the Baptist and Hebert and Weens and Menno Simons and Francis of Assisi and Bach and all the good women in our lives and the mother of Felix Mons and on and on and on. And they were a cloud of witnesses and I bring them into my life today in remembrance and say, they go before me as a cloud of fire and a pillar of light and I will move through this life because it doesn't matter what happens to me anymore or to you. But the faith in life itself is the greatest gift of all. A vast cloud of righteousness and of righteous people because they, with us, 
the righteous shall shine. St. Augustine once said that a precursor of faith is often anger and confronting God. C.S. Lewis said the hate psalms are the ones God answers first. And Job said he will call God into a court of law, and God honors that. Handel's Hallelujah Chorus is interestingly bookended in the Messiah. Before the Hallelujah Chorus, you have a wild three-quarter time tenor piece singing, Thou shalt dash them in pieces, like a tire iron in a china shop. Give them revenge, O God, and smash them. And the Hallelujah Chorus comes in there as a kind of a tribal yell of anger. In the middle of the Hallelujah Chorus, we have a shift, the kingdom of this world, and of his Christ is become, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the Hallelujah Chorus is followed by that lovely four-quarter time lyrical piece, I know that my Redeemer liveth. (laughs) 